I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 19. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But to the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, and for consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? But also, you, unless you utter the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking in the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound to the edification of the church. Therefore let no one who speaks in a tongue pray that he therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Heavenly Father, so many times we take the things that you give as gifts and we somehow turn them around into selfish uh, boasting or abuses. And I, I ask that you would help us to, to see even beyond the spiritual gift mentioned in the passage and, and see that we are to take the blessings that you have given to us or the gifts that you've given and that we would use those to edify and build up the body and take the truth of Christ to the world. Father, love is the, the key to everything. You loved us and you gave. Help us who've received to take that love and to yield and give it as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Must be vacation time. Huh? Why, do, why do you come to church? Each of you had, uh, had reasons for coming this morning. What are those reasons? Think about that for a moment. We should all be here first and foremost to 
worship and adore our great God and Savior together with one another. We could worship God in our prayer closets at home. We could worship God in our cars or together with our families. But when we come together, when we gather, we do so to worship God with the spiritual household of God. And God commands us to do that. There's another reason, though, and actually it's another goal that, uh, that compels us to come together regularly as a body of believers. And that goal is the focus of this chapter. A lot of people, uh, I think a lot of modern Christians look at this chapter and they see this focus on tongues and prophecy and they say, well, I don't know what to do with this. I don't, can't imagine that this applies to me unless they're from a church that, the, a part of a, a denomination or a church that maybe has a, a little higher priority on the matter of tongues than we do here. But this chapter is not about tongues and prophecy. It's only about that symptomatically or secondarily. It's about something far more important and something that very much relates to you and me. <laughs> the goal, the goal that this chapter presents to us as the reason, one of the, the com most compelling reasons we come together is to edify the church. Notice I didn't say it to edify one another. I say to edify the church. The word edify simply means build up. It really is that simple a definition. An edifice is a building. To edify is to build up. The word edify occurs 11 times in the letters of Paul and seven of those 11 times are in this chapter. So edification is clearly a big deal in this chapter. The chapter is about what we are to build up when we gather together. Paul has a whole lot to say in these verses about two specific spiritual gifts, tongues and prophecy. And we're going to spend some time this morning doing our best to understand what those gifts are about and what we need to know about them. But the point of this passage is not, as I said, this, the superiority of prophecy over tongues or vice versa. The point is that the building up that every single one of us is commissioned by God to earnestly pursue when we gather together is the building up not of ourselves, but of His church. The church of Jesus Christ. And the test of how we're doing with that is what goes on in the local church. That affects how we handle every part of our corporate worship. Not just how we handle these two gifts that are in focus here. Uh, it affects how we handle all of the gifts. The Corinthians were mishandling the whole lot of them. Everybody's already seen they were, not, they were not handling the gifts in a manner that, that manifested the love of God. This goal of building up the church affects how we handle differences of personal preference, even personal conviction. It affects how we handle differences that we may have regarding which songs we should sing together, which instruments should be used to back up those songs. It affects the extent to which we feel compelled to honor the schedule printed on the back of every bulletin. It affects the relative priority that we assign to getting to our seats 
when a service is about to begin. It affects the frequency with which any one of us men comes up to the front to share with the body during the worship meetings. It affects what we say when we come up, and it affects how long we take to say it. The God-given assignment to every one of us to give loving priority to the building up of the church rather than of ourselves affects everything about our corporate worship. And it affects how much of our focus on Sunday mornings is on our personal encounter with God rather than our corporate encounter with God. Let me say that again. It affects how how much of our focus on Sunday mornings is about our personal encounter with God as opposed to our corporate encounter with God. We'll have more to say about that. This is a very big deal, beloved. Uh, (laughs) This isn't just about what happens at somebody else's church. This is about what happens here at CBC. It's about how you approach the corporate worship. I want to begin by attempting to understand what was going on with these two gifts that Paul singles out, prophecy and tongues, especially in the Corinthian context. Fifteen times in this one chapter, Paul refers to tongues. As a close second, 14 times in this chapter, he refers to prophecy. In both cases, more times than in any other chapter of the Bible. It's crystal clear, starting back in chapter 12, that the Corinthians had exalted speaking in tongues to the preeminent place among all of the spiritual gifts. It was the great gift. It's equally evident, starting from back in chapter 12, that Paul is overturning that valuation. He's saying, you guys got this wrong. Understanding why Paul makes such a big deal out of of that that prioritization of those two gifts will be very important for understanding the lessons that this chapter has for us at CBC today. We're going to start with tongues. The Corinthian believers firmly believed that tongue speaking was the most desirable of all gifts. And, And I think perhaps in Paul's day, as in our day, there were some who identified themselves as Christians, who said that speaking in tongues was a necessary proof of regeneration, who insisted that every real Christian must speak in tongues to prove that they're real Christians. When I was a brand new believer 48 years ago, there were a bunch of people in my friend group who believed exactly that. One night I I was invited to dinner by a dear family, dear dear friend and, and his family, and uh, this was 1974, you know, back in the dark ages, and uh, my friend and his father and his mother and his siblings and several other friends laid hands on me, and they prayed over me for about 30 minutes that I would receive what they called the baptism of the Spirit and that I would speak in tongues to demonstrate that I had received the baptism of the Spirit, and for 30 minutes... Nothing happened on my side. And it wasn't because I was unwilling. I was too dumb not to be willing. 
I, I didn't know enough about the Bible not to be willing. These guys, I loved them. I thought they were, they were really great spiritual Christians. And I thought, if, if they've got it, I need it. So I was ready, man. I was ready. At one point, the dad hit the pause button and he said, okay, Tom, why don't you just try saying something that's not English? <laughs> Only other thing I knew was a little bit of high school Spanish, and I knew that wasn't what he was talking about. <laughs> so I, I just, I, I remember just lifting up my head and saying, you know, I love you guys, but it seems to me that in Acts chapter 2, the disciples didn't get any preparation for what happened. And, and I said, and in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the Holy Spirit distributes to each person according to His will for the common good, the spiritual gifts. So it sounds to me like it's His job and not my job. It's not for me to work it up. It's, he either gives it to me or He doesn't. And I said, it looks like He's not giving it. And that was the end of the festivities that night. Some evangelical preachers and teachers insist that the gift of tongues consists only of speaking in a known human language that the person with the gift never learned. That kind of appears to be what happened in Acts chapter 2, at the, first, the church's first Pentecost. Other faithful preachers and teachers of the Word believe that the gift of tongue includes, at least in some cases, an otherworldly, heavenly language that doesn't correspond to any known human language. In fact, some believe that it was that language that the disciples actually spoke on the day of Pentecost and it was the Spirit who made people hear that language in their own language. I don't know how that worked. And if you can show me from the text, I'm all ears. <laughs> what I know is it was a miraculous intervention by the Holy Spirit. It was, it was something that no one had ever seen before and people who people were speaking the gospel to other people in a language they didn't know. They were being heard in a language they didn't know. All I know, guys, is what God chooses to reveal about these things. I should mention I do not find an adequate basis in Scripture to conclude that tongues or any other gift of the Spirit mentioned in the New Testament have ceased. I'm not a cessationist. I do believe, however, that I've never seen the gift of tongues practiced in a manner that is consistent with what Paul sets before us in this chapter. Now, that doesn't mean that no one else has seen it. Maybe it just means I don't get around enough. But I haven't seen it. But there are some things, beloved, that we do know about the gift of tongues based on what Paul directly says about it in these chapters. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, Paul makes it very clear that the spiritual gift of praying or speaking in tongues is not the same as the spiritual gift of interpreting that which is spoken in tongues. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says that those two gifts are given to two different people. Now in chapter 14, Paul indicates that both of those gifts might be given to the same individual. He says in verses 13 and 14, chapter 14, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may also interpret. And then he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
It's very interesting, isn't it? If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is disengaged. We cannot avoid the conclusion in chapter 12 and in chapter 14 that the gift of speaking in tongues is not necessarily bundled together with the ability to understand the meaning of that which is spoken. That means that there's sort of a mystical otherworldly aspect to this gift that makes it unlike any of the other spiritual gifts. Unless God provides a person to interpret that which is spoken in tongues, only the person speaking in tongues is edified, and that edification is of a very different kind than everything else that Paul says about edifying the body in this passage. All right, that's what I'm going to say about tongues for the moment. Let's talk about prophecy. The gift of prophecy in the church age should not be conflated with the gift of preaching or teaching. A lot of very well-known pastors and authors, just they just kind of dodge the bullet on this real quickly. They say, well, prophecy in the modern era is just preaching. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, the gift of pastor-teacher is a different gift from the gift of prophecy. And, and we're going to talk about the differences here. I, I believe that like teaching... Prophecy covers certain facets of God-ordained proclamation, but not all facets. They have differences. Prophecy has as its goal to call the hearers to submit their hearts and their lives to God. Let me say that again. Prophecy has as its goal to call the hearers to submit their hearts and their lives to God. Danker's Greek lexicon defines the word propheteia, the word translated prophecy, as, quote, the act of stating or disclosing divine will and purpose. I'd go a step further than that, and I would say that together with disclosing what God has revealed of his will and purpose, prophecy always includes the call to the hearer to submit to, to comply with that will and purpose. Now, not later, but now. In other words, prophecy always demands a godly response. It's interesting that prophecy never entertains the idea of baby steps. It just says, this is what's required. Teaching, on the other hand, can simply call the hearer to know and acknowledge things that God declares to be true of himself, uh, his character, his works, things he declares to be true of man and of creation. In other words, Teaching can at times be essentially just doctrinal. Prophecy, on the other hand, is inherently applicational. It is a call to change. It's a call to action. In short, teaching educates, prophecy obligates. Unlike tongues, prophecy always has content. It always proclaims propositional truth. And that content always comes with the call to action. Now, when it comes to where the content originates, when a prophetic word is uttered, or to put it another way, when it comes to 
how the person entrusted with the gift of prophecy comes to know God's will and purpose so that he or she may disclose it and call others to submit to it, there are two possible answers to that question from a biblical perspective. Either the content of the prophecy is new revelation given directly by God to the prophet to give to others, or the content of the prophecy is existing revelation from God already found in the Word of God that has been revealed. During the, 15, the nearly 1,500 years when God's revelation was being delivered to mankind through the prophets and apostles and through Jesus, it makes sense that those who fulfilled the prophetic assignment were the bearers of new revelation. The very revelation that then became part of the canon of Scripture. But after, after the faith presented in that canon of Scripture was, as Jude puts it, once for all delivered to the saints a couple of thousand years ago, the content of prophecy in our present historical context should be expected not to be new revelation. Every prophetic word that God delivers through His people today originates from His complete, inerrant, and authoritative word. In other words, the, the, prophet, the prophet after the canon is completed is, re, is simply restating what God has already made known. Now, if you think it can't be prophecy unless it's new revelation, my, my response to that is just that that's an artificial constraint, not a biblical constraint. I challenge you to defend that assertion from Scripture. Stay with me and I think you'll see what I'm, what I'm getting at here. Here in 1 Corinthians 14.3, Paul says, and this is a really important verse, 14.3, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Now edification is the goal. Exhortation and consolation are the means. Think for a moment about the historical role of the prophets when they were addressing God's covenant people, Israel and Judah. Not, when, not like when Jonah's addressing Nineveh. There are some similarities. But, but think about when the prophets were addressing the covenant people of God, which, by the way, is overwhelmingly most of the prophecy in the, in the Old Testament. The prophetic task was to exhort through the proclamation of God's commandments, indictments, and warnings and to console and encourage through the proclamation of God's promises to redeem. Always the goal was turning the hearts of God's people back to God. When we studied the book of Jeremiah a while back, we saw chapter after chapter of God's harsh indictments against His own covenant people repeatedly combined with the command to them to turn, to come back to Him, to abandon the worship of false gods, to abandon the, their self-absorbed, destructive behavior, and to come back to the living God. We saw in Jeremiah chapters 29-33, to which is called by many the Book of Hope, the great consolation of God to His covenant people on the basis of His promises to restore them to the land, to make them know Him, to make them His people, and to be their God forever. 
The goal of that prophetic word in, in both cases, both in the, in the warnings and, and exhortations and in the consolation, was always to turn the hearts of God's people back to God. The prophetic task that a Christian with the gift of prophecy today bears toward his fellow believers has the same essential goal as that which the prophets in the Old Testament bore toward the people of Israel and Judah. Again, let me read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, but in the context of verses 1 through 4, listen. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in spirit, he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Both the task of prophecy and the goal of prophecy remain fundamentally the same in both testaments. You with me? The one huge difference between the Christian with the gift of prophecy and the prophets and apostles during the age when the Scriptures were still being delivered is that the Scriptures have been delivered. The canon is finished. That does not change the goal of prophecy, nor does it fund fundamentally change the nature of prophecy. The purpose, the goal of prophecy is still to build up, to draw back to God. It is to exhort and correct through the proclamation of God's indictments, warnings, exhortations. It is to console and encourage through the proclamation of God's promises always with the goal of turning the hearts of God's people back to God. Now, if you say, okay, if you say you don't need to have your heart turned back to God, that you don't need to be exhorted to greater submission to God, that you don't need the encouragement of God's precious and magnificent promises, then I have to say to you that I'm pretty sure God disagrees with you about your assessment of your own needs. The prophetic word does not have to be new revelation from God in order to be prophetic. It doesn't have to disclose something never before heard by men regarding the will and purposes of God in order to disclose that will and those purposes and to call us to submit. And many have said that the Old Testament prophecy included both foretelling telling the future, and forthtelling, proclaiming what God had decreed. Now, based on what we've seen, it's not hard to see the continuity in the test, between the Testaments when it comes to the forthtelling part, the proclaiming. What about the foretelling part? I love what Alistair Begg has to say about this. He envisions a conversation that goes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing here. A guy says to me, it looks to me like the world is coming apart at the seams. I don't know how things got the way they are. I don't know where they're headed. I certainly don't know how they're going to end up. But it's, it's really messy. And Alistair says to him, well, actually, I do know why they are the way they are. I do know where they're headed, and I know how they're going to end up. And the guy says to him, what are you, some kind of prophet? See, 
the information that you and I have to offer to one another and to mankind about why things are the way they are, why they're going, where they're going, and, and what, how they're going to end up, what, what the end result will be, doesn't have to be never-before-revealed information in order to be genuinely and biblically prophetic. All right. That's what I have to say about prophecy in tongues. You can take it or leave it. There are many views on these things, but as you probably know. Let's talk about, uh, about what Paul is doing in this chapter with those two, those two gifts. He presents essentially the challenge to answer the question, which is greater, prophecy or tongues, and why? And he doesn't mince words answering that question, right? Throughout all of the first half of 1 Corinthians 14 and part of the second half, Paul contrasts prophecy and tongues in order to repeatedly point out the one characteristic of prophecy that makes that spiritual gift far more desirable. There's no competition here. Prophecy is far more desirable than the gift of tongues in the context of the corporate worship of the people of God. And that one characteristic that he points out over and over and over here is that prophecy builds up the church while tongues build up the individual. Verse 12 nails the central exhortation of this, of this chapter. It says, So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification, the building up of the church. In verse 4, Paul says, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. In verse 5, he says, Greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. The point's not unclear here, is it? It's all about the edification of the church. In answer to the question, which gift is more desirable when we gather, tongues or prophecy? The answer is emphatically prophecy. And the very straightforward reason is that tongues edify the individual and prophecy edifies the church. So the question then is, if you, if you set aside for a moment the whole tongues and prophecy thing and you go to the real heart of this chapter, Whose edification are you pursuing when we gather as a church? I'll never forget what one dear brother and friend who is now an elder in this flock said to me several years ago when there was a bit of controversy over the addition of drums to the instruments on the worship team. This brother said to me, if we're doing something in our worship together that doesn't match up with my personal preferences, but enhances the worship of brothers and sisters around me, I'm all for it. That is precisely the attitude of the heart to which Paul is exhorting every single one of us. And that attitude touches a whole lot more than just music. It touches everything that we do when we come together. There's a reason this chapter comes immediately after the love chapter in chapter 13. The supreme priority of sacrificial, self-denying love is still front and center here in chapter 14. Paul is telling us how that love, 
love for God and love for one another plays out in our actions toward one another (laughs) when we assemble as the people of God. The building up that we are to earnestly, zealously seek is not the building up of ourselves. It is the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Read Ephesians chapter 4. So that through the appropriate working of every individual part, the body of Christ might grow up into our head who is Christ, into one new man that we might be mature, equipped to do the work of service, the work of Jesus Christ on the earth. Ray Steadman said a long time ago, it is not the individual Christian who is the continuing incarnation of Christ on earth. It is the church. It is the church that is the continuing incarnation of Christ on earth. So the church is what we are here to build up. What edifies the body? In verses 6 through 11, Paul speaks of an instrument that produces an indistinct sound. And he's he's using this as a metaphor for speaking in unknown languages when we come together. In effect, he's saying that a a flute, a harp, or a bugle that plays just one note, or that doesn't remain within the key or on tempo, can't be said to be making music. If you put several such instruments together, all violating that that makes that which makes music music, which you end up with is cacophony. You end up with noise, right? Paul's point has to do with the Corinthians' insistence on speaking in tongues when they came together. In fact, speaking over each other. He's saying that if that which is done in the corporate worship isn't clear, orderly, and understandable to all, it does not edify the body. So the first thing is that which edifies is clear and understandable. The second vitally important characteristic of that which edifies or builds up the body is that it engages the mind of every individual. Listen again to verses 13 through 19. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome? I shall pray with the Spirit. I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the Spirit. And I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks? Since he doesn't know what you're saying. For you're giving thanks well enough. The attitude of your heart is thankful, in other words. But the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's a pretty big contrast. Five words, 10,000 words. Throughout the Bible, beloved, the mind is declared to be the gateway to the soul of man, to the innermost man. Look in a concordance for... Mind words. Unabridged Bible concordance. They're available online. Look for words and phrases like reckon, think, consider, set your minds on, let your mind dwell on, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll find a lot of verses. God commands us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In order to build up the body, 
The benefit that is communicated through a spiritual gift must engage the mind. Okay? And that means in the corporate worship. The means, the vessel for communicating truth to the mind is words. The vessel for communicating truth to the mind is words. That's why Paul places prophecy as the most highly valued end of the spectrum when it comes to spiritual gifts. And, he, and at the same time, he places tongues at the least highly valued end of the spectrum. Unlike tongues, prophecy by definition engages the minds of all who hear it. I'm going to read you four verses from Colossians chapter 3. They are about what happens when we come together. As I read them, please pay especially close attention to the indispensable role of intelligible words in that which we share with one another when we come together and where those words come from. Colossians 3, verses 14 through 17. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. When we come together, the psalms that we recite, the hymns and spiritual songs that we sing, the admonition that we give to each other, and the thanks that we declare to God are all built on a shared understanding of that which is said and sung and prayed. It is by engaging one another's minds with the revelation of God that He has given us of Himself and sharing our response to that revelation that we build up the body of Christ when we come together. It's not through speaking in languages that nobody in the room knows. It's not through rolling in the aisles or laughing in the Spirit or loud individual ecstatic displays that drown one another out or playing instruments so loudly that nobody can even understand what they're singing. Shared words are the stuff of shared worship. And the Word of God is our one legitimate source for, the, for those shared words. The sword of the Spirit is the living and active Word of God. It is that Word, His Word, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and that lays our thoughts and intentions bare before the eyes of God. That Word consists of propositional revelation in the form of words, which are the very words of God. This is why the Word of Christ must richly dwell in our hearts. Each of our hearts. Nothing else will enhance our worship together of our glorious God as surely as His Word richly dwelling in our hearts. You want to build up the body? One thing you must do is get to know the Word of God and hide it in your heart.
The edification that is to take place when we come together is first clear and understandable to all. Secondly, it comes through the gateway of the mind in words, God's words. Finally, it is edification through shared experience of God, not through individual experience of God. That doesn't mean individual experience of God is a bad thing. It means it's not the focus of our gathered experience. The building up that Paul says must be the focus of our worship together devotes attention to that which is shared together with our brothers and sisters, not that which is only experienced individually. During my 48 years as a child of God, I've known a number of professing believers whose entire spiritual life revolves around one amazing experience that they had at some point in their life. It might have been a dream. It might have been a vision. It might have been God speaking to them in an audible voice at some strategic point in their lives. But it's something that applied very specifically to them and was not experienced by anyone else. But the unavoidable reality is that, if, that I cannot reprove or rebuke or exhort or instruct you on the basis of some individual deeply personal experience of God that I alone have had and that you had no part in. In fact, that you can't even verify. Such an encounter may have great importance to me, but it is of very little value for building up the body of Christ because it's not shared with the body of Christ. Whatever comfort and encouragement I might be able to give you on the basis of that experience is really small because I can't assure you that you'll ever have a similar experience. Now, I'm not talking here about sharing personal testimonies, about God's intervention in our lives, about how God brought you to trust in Jesus Christ or how God intervenes, intervened in your life to provide for you or to protect you. The Bible contains many such testimonies. Look at the votive offerings in the Old Testament. That's what those are about, God providing. Paul's own testimony of his conversion in Acts 26 and Galatians 1. One of the many ways we build up the body is by sharing together with our fellow saints the gracious interventions of God in our lives. That's what we do when we come together for the Lord's table. We're sharing an event, an intervention by God that we weren't here to experience when it happened, but other believers did experience. In fact, a whole bunch of them. They saw his death, they witnessed his death, and more than 500 of them witnessed the resurrected Christ. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote these books, had several meetings with the resurrected Christ, apparently, that started on the road to, to uh, Damascus. All right. What I am saying is this. What you and I set before the gathered people of God is that which the people of God can participate in together as one. We don't come together to have a bunch of individual separate encounters with God. We come together to share our encounter of God together with the people of God. There's a corollary to that that I believe should, I should mention in closing, and that is that it is not your personal holiness that is to be your foremost pursuit when you come together with the people of God. It is the holiness of the household of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Personal holiness is indispensable, but beloved, it's not the end point. Read Ephesians 4. 
The goal, the point, the purpose of personal holiness is that God will work through every individual member of the body to create holiness in His church corporately so that the church will be effective as the continuing incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth to seek and save that which is lost. We who grew up here in the land of rugged individualism find it hard to operate in such a pervasively corporate mode. We are so obsessed with our own personal spiritual struggle for success in our own walk with God that we find it hard to think and act for the sake of the spiritual success of the church. But God's assignment to us when we come together as the body of Christ is to build up the body of Christ, not the individual members of that body. Dear Father, teach us to build up, to fortify, to move toward maturity the one new man that You have created, that You have made us to be together in Jesus Christ. Make Your church unassailably strong in this world through our self-denying, sacrificial love for one another that is entirely because of Your love for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.